Welcome to Every Step Podcast. I'm Christina Weston. And I'm Judith Beck. Every Step is the podcast where career and life meet. With a new guest every episode, we explore the gutsy issues affecting everyone in the workplace. We are joined today by Darren Murth, a recognized visionary in organizational design. CNBN referred to Darren as an oracle of remote work. In this episode, we discuss the practical steps required to create a successful remote work organization. Welcome, Darren. It's so great to have you on every step today. Judith and I have been having so many conversations about the pros and cons of remote work. And I think it's safe to say that the conversations we've been having both between us and with other leaders is that the jury is still out. So you're the expert in this. Give us the elevator pitch for remote work. Yeah, thanks first off for having me. I love this conversation. So the elevator pitch is simple. Remote work is not about the future of work. It's about the future of living. And too many leaders right now are fixated on the geographic element of remote work instead of thinking much bigger picture about what type of lives it can unlock and for business leaders what funneling that loyalty back into the business can really generate uh, for organizations. Now, there are some prerequisites to this. If you really believe that remote work is about the future of living, you have to think about the intersection of work and life very differently. And a lot of organizations are kind of stuck in pandemic era work from home, which by the way, quarantine work from home is not remote work. And so the world thinks they've had this great remote work experiment for the past two or three years, but it's actually the worst incarnation of remote work. Intentionally designed remote work is an entirely different operating model. I like to say that remote work is not a perk. Remote work is a product. And far too many organizations are looking at it purely as a perk or a policy, not with the rigor and the iteration and the testing and the feedback that would go into anything that was a product. Wow, I love that. It's not a perk. It's because that is a, just a shift in in mindset, isn't it? And I noticed, I know that you've done the work from home playbook and you've had over 150,000 downloads with it. Is is it for everyone? Like when you go into an organization, is it for every position within the organization or is it really more suited? And I'm talking about corporate, not you know retail and places where they really need to be there, but in the corporate environment, is it for every role? I mean, how, how does that work? Yeah, it's some great nuance there. So first off, we're talking about knowledge work. Obviously, if you're an automotive mechanic, we still need you there. Can't really remote work, change tires and and change oil yet, but remote work medicine is definitely coming a long way. So yes, in the context of knowledge work, the question is remote work for everyone. I actually would shift that a bit. I think that we could ask the question, is isolated work right for everyone? And the reason I add that nuance is that the best remote work organizations actually don't force people to work from home. There are a lot of great remote workers that just love the camaraderie, the buzz, the energy of working around other people. But even for organizations that don't have an office, that is still totally achievable. So WeWork, for example, has been around for a long time, but there's been a massive amount of third spaces. I call these places third spaces, communal work centers, where even dedicated remote workers can go to be around other people and work within a group. And so working in isolation, not great for everyone. The introverts in the house certainly appreciate their privacy, but the extroverts might want to find an environment that works better for them. But I would say that remote work certainly attracts a certain type of person. It is somewhat self-selecting and self-repelling. It generally attracts people who are perhaps a bit more senior in their career or people who appreciate their privacy, introverts, uh, for example. And it really attracts self-starters, people that really value agency. They really value autonomy. Um, There are some people who just prefer to be together in a group with 
their colleagues. And I have nothing against that. I think in the future of work, you will see some organizations that double down on that co-located infrastructure. And there will be some companies that straddle the gap with hybrid. There'll be some companies that are all remote. Look, I think it's a win. I think on the other side of this, we'll simply have more options for more people and the companies that choose their path will have to be more explicit about the culture they're creating. For a long time, I would apply to organizations that I thought were flexible or I thought embraced remote work. And then I found out that people had different ideas of what that looked like. In the future of work 2023 and beyond, companies have to be more explicit about that. I think that will purify the recruiting, recruiting pipeline and it will ensure that people are values aligned whenever they join whatever type of organization is best suited for them. Yeah, I think that's that's really critical, that whole values piece, but also the other point that you touched on, which I think is really important, and it's a conversation that Judith and I have all the time and that we have with other leaders all the time, is that it might be more suited to a more mature, experienced knowledge worker as opposed to somebody that's coming through the ranks. One of the concerns that that many leaders have is how do we get that knowledge transfer? Yes, we have Slack and Teams and a whole bunch of tools, but they're not having those incidental conversations. They're not having the um, listening in conversations, well, they're not having the conversation, the listening in opportunities where they're, they're learning by absorption, by osmosis. And, and this is the thing that we, we worry about in terms of how do we build maturity and competence and skills in our younger people that aren't able to role model in the same way? And those younger people too have a propensity to text and type and and do things in short, sharp. So they're not learning how to build relationships, which is critical going forward. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. I'll start with the infrastructure bit. So I would actually caution leaders here when ingesting data right after the pandemic. So if you were to ask someone, do you like wor working remotely or not? But they're coming at that from or within an organization that has invested nothing in building great remote infrastructure. Mm. They may say, no, I don't like working remotely. And so leaders may take that as, well, I guess we should get everyone back into the office, but it's actually sending the wrong signal. What they would say if it were cast a bit differently is, I would love remote work if you would build a great remote work environment for me to work in. A lot of organizations, going back to the policy versus product, a lot of organizations are just saying, yeah, you can work from wherever, but they're not actually investing in the right tools, the right culture, the right documentation. They're not hiring a chief architect. I mean, imagine how absurd it would so be true. if you wanted to start an organization and then they show up at the skyscraper on day one and it's just gutted from top to bottom. There's no architect to build the hallways, to build the door, to build the systems, to build the security. We invest all of this in, in our co-located spaces. Organizations have to put that much effort into architecting their remote work operations. And far too few organizations have invested in knowledge management systems and collaboration systems. And so when you're feeling this friction of, I can't collaborate well, or information is in silos, or I don't know who to reach out to, that's not a problem with remote work. That's a problem with operations. And a lot of organizations just haven't dedicated a person or a team to really getting this right. Look, over the long arc of time, remote work just becomes work, which means remote operations are just operations. And so organizations can only defer this or bury their heads in the sand for a certain amount of time before they'll have to embrace work and operations. These are business critical types of functions. Now to the second part of your question, there's a lot of truth in that. There's value in getting together in person. So I don't want anyone to hear this and think, oh, the goal here is to build an organization where humans never see each other in person. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The best remote organizations have ironclad in-person strategies. Now there are different tactics you can take here, but one that I love is this idea of onboarding cohorts. So if you're a remote organization, any 
group that would start at your company, let's say in Q1, maybe you get all of them together for the first week in Q2. You fly them in, you invest the budget, the money that you would have saved in a skyscraper, you invested in travel. You bring people together for a really focused week where that cultural immersion can happen. They can commiserate with each other, kind of be lost together, break bread together. Super valuable. You don't need to get everyone together on a daily basis, even once a year when people can plan for it, they look forward to it. That can really uh, create and fill up their social reservoir and carry them forward for a long time. So that's one option. Another option uh, that we implemented at GitLab, where I was the head of remote, was this notion of a visiting grant. And so we enabled people to have a small budget and then design ad hoc gatherings around the world. So what we saw happen is there were some travel planners embedded within the org. And so a few of them raised their hands and said, yeah, I would love to plan this excursion. And then other people would just follow and they would join. They had a buffet of options and they would use their budget to go join the excursion that worked for them. Now, interestingly, we weren't able to get everyone together in one place, but it was this shared experience of experiences that were happening around the world. So smaller groups got together, they took great photos and stories and documentation, and then they shared that adventure back with everyone else. So it kind of felt like you were there even though you weren't there. And so, yeah, say all of that to say, if you're a leader in this space, please do invest in in-person experiences. We're humans, we're communal beings. There's really no exactly. replacing that. Yeah. Breaking bread uh, and culture building. And so it is worth investing in if you can. I think the I think um, if I put on my executive search hat, having a, a search business for many years, one of the things that was really important in one being able to recruit um, and getting people into an organization was trust and people feeling like they're bonded to the company. And when I would approach someone, if they were bonded to the company and they loved everybody they worked with and it was very difficult to get them to move unless it was clearly a much better opportunity. So my my concern or my my I'm wondering on whether or not um, company turnover will be uh, higher because people, if they are working remotely, won't feel as bonded to the organization and the culture as they once were because they aren't going in meeting people and having those water cooler moments and having those chats and, you know, and also having those kind of opportunities that are accidental. You know, when you're in an office and you're kind of, you hear about something and it's a project, you might not have, you wouldn't have heard about it on the phone or through Slack meetings, but you'd go, oh, I'll put my hand up for that. Or, you know, those kind of things. Or I being heard about this by leadership, even the being noticed by leadership. Oh, yeah. All those different types of um, things that you do here um, when you are in the office that then and you get to meet people accidentally too, even people who are more senior than you. And you get to meet them. You start feeling bonded. They tell you about things. How how is or in your travelings and what you're doing and all your research and everything that you've done? Has, have you seen that that is an issue or how are companies going to make sure that they build a cut culture where people feel like um, they don't want to leave? This is great. I feel I like my boss. Sometimes people tell me because I've heard over, you know, just even recently people said, I, don't, I haven't even met my boss face to face yet. And, you know, I don't even know who they are. And I've been here for two years. Now, that's the pandemic. And I'm sure, like you were saying, people, they're putting in processes to that are different. Um, but is that something that we need to be concerned about in the companies need to be concerned about? And what are they doing to overcome that? Yeah, I'll start with this. Serendipity is overrated and intentionality is underrated. And so when you were talking about the water cooler or bumping into people, there's this air, this almost romanticizing of serendipity. And all of that is all fine, well, and good. But also think about this. If you were someone who worked on floor seven of an office in Sydney, what's the chance that you would meet an executive on floor 10 who worked in Phoenix or Singapore? Essentially zero. But in a remote organization, you're just one click away from all of these people all over the globe. So you actually have more access to more people, more experiences, 
it just requires way more intentionality. You can't just wait to show up in the right place and bump into the right person. And I will also say for introverts, this is a godsend because what you just described is the perfect world for the extrovert, but it's a nightmare for introverts. And it, I cower to think at the innovation that has been squashed in organizations over the past hundred plus years, because it's basically all designed to make extroverts thrive. So how do you embed intentionality? Well, first of all, you should hire someone to do this. If you want to get serious about revenue, you hire a chief revenue officer. I mean, this isn't rocket science, but it is a bit of a leap for organizations to think, Maybe we should hire someone to look after workplace design. Maybe we should hire someone to think about people experience from an end-to-end perspective. So even with something as as simple as Slack, for example, one of the things that we did at GitLab is we had topical channels, communities that got people interested in certain things. And so we had a parenting channel. And this channel was great for anything from the trivial, like, Uh, I can't get my seven-year-old to put pants on. Anyone have any clever tricks of how to do this? (laughs) Two more serious things, like I would see people routinely who would bond over their child having a similar disorder. And it was just magical moment of, wow, we live 5,000 miles apart, but we can now have direct one-on-ones and talk about the exact same issue that is impacting our family. Like, good luck getting that out of a co-located space. Like, you would never connect those dots. Another tangible example I want to give leaders here is something that I call a community impact outing. So early in the pandemic, I think a lot of leaders may be familiar with the Zoom happy hour. If we can't get people together, but we still want that camaraderie, so let's just force everyone into a Zoom happy hour and awkwardly talk about the weather. Right. So here's a better way to do that. The community impact outing is the same sunk cost. It's the same hour spent across the organization. But instead of forcing people into a Zoom box, which, by the way, isn't very inclusive of time zones, you just enable people to spend that hour during the week at an hour or during a time that works for them. And you say, go do something meaningful to you in your local community. Maybe that's reading in a local library. Maybe it's volunteering at a food bank. For me, I'm an adoptive dad. I try to spend as much time as I can in the adoption community. So maybe I go and volunteer my time at a pregnancy center or an orphanage. Now, if you capture that and you share it back with the organization, you create magical moments. For example, if I spend my time in this way and I share it back with the org, even something simple in a Slack channel, for example, other people could see that adoption means something to me. And this actually happened while I was at GitLab. I started to receive inbounds from people saying things like, wow, I'm adopted. It's amazing that we have an adoptive parent on the team. Do you want to have a conversation? Another person said, hey, we're thinking about adoption. We're just early in the the journey. Would you have a conversation with me and, and talk about your journey? These are authentic, genuine connections that were built through intentionality in remote work. And I dare say I would have never made those connections if we just bumped into each other in an office. I mean, what are the chances we're going to start talking about adoption if we're just meeting each other in a boardroom? It's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely. So these are just these small, a few small tangible examples of the power of intentionality, but these things aren't going to happen unless you put the effort to make them happen. Yeah, that's so true. That intentionality piece is critical. I know um, talking to um, some of the leaders in one of the funds management organisations that's cross-jurisdictional, what they do is they have... um, they put people together that don't know each other to have a conversation that have never met across the organisation. And it's a bit like speed dating in some ways, but they have, I don't know whether it's every week or every two weeks, they actually have um, a time where they catch up with somebody in another division, another area, and they get to just talk about various things. So that's there's been some intention put into that. And I think that's and- that's quite key. You've got to think about it. And I don't believe we've actually put intention around saying we need uh, a specialist role whose focus is to think about these things. I think we I think you're quite right. We are responding knee-jerk to a pandemic environment and and dragging that 
through as if that music's going to keep playing the way it was always playing. But we need to actually look at it and design it and think about it and be conscious about what we're doing. And look, this is all history repeating itself. There was a time when social media was nascent. And the idea of hiring a dedicated communications manager for social media would have seemed absurd. Yeah. And now yeah. for most corporations, it would be a travesty to not have someone to steward and look after a brand's social presence. And it changed that quickly. The same thing with communications. Communications in an org used to be a single line item within the chief marketing officer. And now we have entire communication teams to manage that. And so we've seen this before. It's just taking leaders a bit of time to wrap their heads around remote operations and operations and putting some intentionality behind that. Judith, if I may, I want to talk, I want to mention one other thing that you said earlier about loyalty and bonds and how tough it was to, to get someone dislocated from a company that they really, really love. This may be a bit provocative, but I think in the future of work, workplace culture will largely be built outside of the workplace. And I think that's totally okay. And here's what I mean by that. In a co-located world pre-COVID, a lot of people received a lot of their identity from who they were at work. It's very true. And they filled their social reservoir based on what work gave them. Now, I would challenge that that was never the healthiest relationship. And COVID and remote work has simply exposed what I think was a truth even before the pandemic. And so workplaces now are grappling with what, why does our culture feel different or like it's degrading? It may be degrading, but it may also be that people are just realizing that they're way happier and healthier filling their social reservoir from communities other than the ones they have at work. And I think instead of fighting against this tooth and nail, Organizations should lean all the way into it because they're enabling their people to fill themselves up with things that actually matter. And I think that everyone has an identity stack or a purpose portfolio. It is this assortment of stocks, if you will. And if you're over or under invested in any one of them, things can get out of whack. And only you personally will know what that balance should be. In a post-COVID world, people are reevaluating what makes me me? What is my purpose portfolio? What truly drives joy? I think workplaces should be okay with letting go on some of that so that people actually fulfill themselves in different ways. Because what I've found is that when you do that, people actually pour way more into their work because they become increasingly grateful for an environment that allows them to do things that they probably couldn't in a pre-pandemic space. That's true. You know, I think... Um... I mean, you think about the, let's say, the graduates and the young ones coming into the work environment. We talk about intro, introverts and extroverts. And, you know, let's face it, most graduates probably are a bit of are, are introverts because they don't know what they're doing or who to speak to or what to do. How how will um, a head of remote area, and I think it's, not, it's actually not a one-person job, it's probably a whole division, um, take care of the ones coming in new like that because how will they know the cues how will they be able how will a manager who's running a team and bringing in all these young people into that team be able to read the cues about whether or not they're happy or that they've misinterpreted something or they're because they're not in an office environment they're at home and they might not want to speak up because you know they are new and um, and they are a little introverted and and also um, being able coming out. Some people who are introverts can turn into a little bit of extroverts. I mean, I considered myself an introvert. Believe it or not, people <laughs> don't believe it. <laughs> but I went in. You know, it was more. You know, I had to. I had to learn the skill. I had to learn, and I had good mentors that helped me help me do it. But a lot of them were people in my net social network, but also my bosses who gave me advice and would see I was struggling with something. How do we see when people are struggling at home? Christina and I were having a conversation earlier yeah. about also um, women, especially who are in not good situations at home, and now they're working from home. And 
the boss doesn't know that and that you know I, I guess it's a long question but how how do people how do managers read those cues of the remote work environment what kind of process can a company put in to to know to make sure they have a handle on how their workforce is going and feeling and the extension to that i think judith is also are we now as leaders more responsible for the humanness of our people, whereas previously we were just responsible, I'm going to be blunt, about the output. So with the remote work, are are we now as leaders, an extension to Judith's question, do we need to care more? Such a good framing of that. First of all, Judith, I'll say that I think you and I both are extroverted introverts. So we're, we're learning our way around that. No, nothing wrong with that. Um, gosh, I would start by saying leaders have to drop the preconceived notions. So I do everything I can to enter every engagement with the question, what do I not know? And I think a lot of leaders are interfacing with younger employees now with a lot of preconceived notions. They really aren't entering the conversation asking, what do we not know? They're entering the conversation with a lot of baggage and historical knowledge, and they're trying to force it into an entirely new environment. And then they're a bit stumped when it doesn't quite work out so well. Um, the reason I say that is I hear a lot of conversation around Gen Z, the newer workplace generation, really needing that in-person mentoring, really clamoring for that, maybe. But I think there will be plenty of opportunities for them. If a person wants to graduate from university and move to a co-located role in Sydney or New York to really get that, those opportunities will be there. I think instead we should ask them, what do you want? Remember, this is the generation that met all of their friends first on a phone mm. and then in person. So maybe we give them a little more credit. They kind of know their way around the digital space and maybe they don't want exactly what we think they want. So starting with the survey, starting with asking, what could success look like for you here? I know that's very humbling for workplace leaders that have been doing this for a long time, but now's a pretty good time to kind of throw the old playbook out and invite new questions on that. The second point to Christina's uh, uh, framing there is absolutely yes. There's no getting around the fact that workplace well-being is now an integral part of the employee life cycle and the employee experience. And the specific example you mentioned of certain people not having the best home environments to work from. Well, the truth is, even when they were commuting into an office, they still had a rough home environment. That part hasn't changed. So as leaders, what we can do is offer third spaces. There are a lot of organizations, for example, that will reimburse if they want to go work from a different space. Now, some organizations are hybrid. They still have an office. And so people can choose uh, to go into that office. But we have to ask more questions. Again, going back to what do I not know? How can I be helpful to you? You mentioned reading the cues. There's a lot of power in that, but also in the future of work we're going to have to do a much better job of cutting through the implicit and making it explicit. Now, this isn't entirely comfortable and not everyone's going to be as comfortable <clears throat> in the explicit, but it's on all of us to create a space of psychological safety where we can share some of these things. The truth is a lot of people that didn't have great home environments were kind of checking that version of themselves at the door and going into their workplace and trying to be a different person but now there's you can't really separate those. There's the, the lines are blurred. And as leaders, we have to be empathetic uh, toward that. Now, look, I'm like Simon Sinek. I'm the eternal optimist. I try to see the opportunity in every challenge, not the challenge in every opportunity. But there will be some realities that uh, we have to wade through. But I think having that uh, mentality and enabling people to try to do their best work wherever is best for them uh, I think will will go a long way for orgs. You know that I love the thing that um, it's made me think with what you just said is that are we? Because um, uh, I'll be I'll be frank. I'm like a big supporter of getting in the office and going and doing that. I always you know meet people, connect everything. But having heard what you just said, are we trying? Maybe we're trying to force old habits onto the 
new generation who got it under control and they're going to have they're going to do it differently like every, like every generation did you know we had hot one generation brought hot desking in and open plans and everybody complained about that too and the other thing is um when you think about it if you were a manager a general manager or, or uh, running several states well you're only going to have that interaction one-on-one with the state that you're in and you're still going to have to build relationships with New South Wales, South Australia, you know, all the other different people in those states, which is kind of a form of remote, isn't it? It's just a different background when you're, you know, it's just a yeah. different, different office. Look, I, I shared this, that I think in, in 2023 and beyond, every organization is a remote organization. Even if you are a full advocate of return to office. The reality is your clients and your partners, you're going to be dealing with people who are all over the globe. And the truth is, unless you're a CEO that mandates everyone come back to one office and force everyone to work on desktop computers that are tethered to the wall, you are a remote company. If you issue laptops and phones, people can do work remotely. If you have two offices, Sydney and Singapore are remote to each other. And so I, I just see no getting around the fact that the, this is the new reality. And I think leaders who are kind of burying their heads in the sand and saying, we're not going to embrace remote first principles. We're going to continue to use the physical whiteboard, even though no one, even the floor above us, let alone the continent beside us can engage or interact with this. It's just not going to work. It's not, it's not the durability and the resilience that uh, the shareholders will be looking for in the years to come. Well, you know, the thing is the whiteboard has its place, but maybe it's in that, way, like you said, bringing everybody together every so often to have the, the big group bonding sessions and those types of things. I mean, you may be turning me around to uh, to remote. I'm still kind of thinking hybrid, but I'm 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 liking a lot of the stuff that you're saying because it, if if I um think about when I was running my business because I ran it for 25 years and I had I had um, offices in different states, I would have saved a fortune, <laughs> an absolute fortune in a lot of things, and also my staff would have also, um, I mean, I was a firm believer that, you know, um, balance and everything else. And I didn't want people there later on the weekends or anything. So you got to love what you do. That's my, that my motto, but um, people working from home um, could have given them a little bit more flexibility and saved them cost. But what about things like confidentiality, certain, like if I'm working in a bank or even what, what we did with executive search, everything had to be confidential. So you couldn't have consultants out there taking files home or speak or, you know, um, sitting on a desk with, with um, files of people because they were senior executive people. And if it got out, even one, if one of their family members see it, that's an issue. So how do we protect confidentiality issues to make sure with certain companies that customers feel confident that, so if I'm a customer and I'm using a company that's remote and I know all my information is out in five, 500 different locations, how, how am I, how's the company going to make me feel confident that that's okay? Because I'm yeah. old school, remember? I'm old school. Does <laughs> <laughs> technology solve that now, don't we? I mean, technology has been such a phenomenal enabler. We have so many tools and so many permissions access methodologies that we can ensure that only certain people see certain things. It just means, Judith, you can't print things off anymore. No, but it's not just that. It's more like you you might have a home, and I, and I know that you're not, you know, everybody's paperless, but you could have your computer there and you could be working in a home, sort of a home office that's not an office because it's your kitchen table because you don't have a separate office and you've got your screens going and and you've got stuff on there that's supposed to be confidential but there's roommates or people or partners um that see it and they two months later they might forget where that information came and relay it to somebody else that's the part where you kind of go okay 
that's where that head of remote, right, has to be the person to make sure from a structure. Policies, procedures, policies, protocols. Procedures, they need to go in and check their home offices to make sure that they're covered by, you know, occupational health and safety and all that. Is that all part of it? Is that all part of what the head of remote would do? Totally. And if not directly, it would be collaborating with folks in HR business partners, legal and compliance to make sure that it's set up properly. All, <laughs> here's the thing. I'm, I'm going to give you a funny example. But 10 or 15 years ago, we had executives that would hop on an airplane and fly to a business meeting with confidential information on their laptop. <laughs> and the person sitting right beside, like there's just, in my mind, there's just no difference from what you just said to how companies have been operating forever. Bottom line is information sensitivity is everyone's job. And even for co-located companies, there were people that, again, had laptops, so they open their laptop on the tube or they open their laptop in an airport lounge. It's no different. In my mind, I would argue that someone's home is actually more private and more confidential than an airline lounge or an airplane or any other place in the world yeah. that you could get work done Hackers. with a laptop. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what it really comes down to is setting the processes, the policies and onboarding people the right way. Now, we're in this interesting moment in time where a lot of organizations were forced into remote without having onboarding designed for remote work. And so there's this gap, to your point on the confidentiality gap, well, there was no onboarding module for how do we advise remote confidentiality because no one imagined that COVID would force them into it. If you just take a beat, update that, and now as you're onboarding new cohorts, they're getting an entirely different experience. And so I think with time and that evolution will uh, we'll help solve some of that. And I also want to, you had mentioned hybrid. I want to say something that's probably going to be uh, also a bit polarizing, but I'll explain what I mean. I really think there is no such thing as hybrid. A company is either remote first or office first. And I can look at your policies and workflows and tell you the difference. The thing about hybrid is, it fixates on where people are, which in my mind is actually masking the real conversation, which is how does work happen? If all of these organizations that are struggling with, do we have people here? Do we have people there? Would just drop the whole conversation and ask, how can we update our workflows to ensure that business gets done no matter where people choose to be? It would be such a more fruitful healthier conversation. It would build in durability and resilience. We're just missing the point. The so are, you, not, so are, you, are you sort of saying, um, so how I'm hearing this, hybrid, more like hybrid by choice. In other words, the company will, will um, you're going to be remote, but if you want to come into the office, it's your choice. You want to come into right. So you know how a lot of companies, especially the big banks and everything, they have the... Um, uh, hot desking. And so there no one has a desk They come in and they, they log in that kind of thing. And people have said to me that their whole teams have come into the hot desking environment. And they end up having zoom meetings. <laughs> you know, like they're, and they're having zoom meetings one after another. What's but, the point? What's the point? And, and, and some of the leaders have gone. So why am I here? Because I'm doing this. So they've made it. So when they're in the office, they're not having meetings and it's about bonding with their team. Totally. So do you give them a choice? So when, when you say hybrid, it's not hybrid. You have to be here Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's more, we have an office space. If you want to go into that office space and work and meet colleagues and there's places for you to do that. Is that a good idea? Is that a good thing to have? Like give yes. the, give the workforce a choice. So you don't have to come in. But if you want to come in, we've got a workspace, you know, it's it's um, where you can work and meet people if you want, but you don't have to. I think choice. it's about I think it's less about choice and more about clarity. Um, so I think a lot of organizations <clears throat> are using hybrid as a cop out, as in we'll give you a choice. You can work from our branded office or you can work from home. But then parenthetically, what they're saying is, but we're not going to invest in making a better experience for either. Like that's actually not what people want going forward. Uh, what I would rather you say is, <clears throat> we acknowledge that the future is remote, 
So here are all the things that we're updating and evolving to make sure that you can do your job from anywhere. Also, we happen to have a hundred year lease on this office in this certain <laughs> city. <laughs> and if you would like to work there, it's available to you. But if you don't choose to work there, your experience won't be inferior. That's the nuance that's missing. Because people that are hearing hybrid are thinking, well, do I need to go into the office to get access to the right people, the right information, the right tools? That means that there's an A team and a B team. That's not what you want. You want equal access to information, equal access to promotion. You don't want to create an environment which is uh, particularly exclusionary to one group or the other. And the only way to do that is by updating how you work to render where you work largely irrelevant. And that's where we have not, as a workplace society, we've not really evolved the conversation to that point yet. When I listen, when I listen to you speak, it sounds so simple. There's so much clarity around this. And yet our leaders are grappling and we've got this additional tug of war where the cities are saying, we're losing footfall, we're losing foot traffic, bring your people back. We need to stimulate and reinvigorate our cities. So the leaders are having this, the chambers of commerce and the equivalents are kind of having this push-pull around, get your people in. But I'm also hearing in what you're saying, we haven't, our leaders haven't, really thought about it with the clarity that you have. <laughs> and it actually sounds quite simple when I listen to you pitch the case for remote. Yeah, I mean, look, great remote first fundamentals, when you boil them all the way down, are great business fundamentals. Look, I call this the fax machine moment of the workplace. If you dial back 20 years or so ago, there were recruiting teams that had their processes perfectly dialed in to accept resumes and CVs through the fax machine. And then there was the advent of email. And they saw that, but they still chose to double down on the fax machine because the, the fear, the uncertainty, we don't know the process, like we're just not going to move to email. That decision did not age well. And a lot of leaders are doubling down on the proverbial fax machine. And I think it's only a matter of time. Yep before they reap what they're sowing by doing that. I wanna give you one example on the municipal front as well. I don't disagree that remote work fundamentally changes how municipalities have to attract people. They've been getting by really, really easily. For a long time, if you were running a city, all you would have to say is, yeah, we'll give you a tax break to come build a skyscraper here and overnight you could bolster your tax revenue. It's not that easy anymore. However, seeing the opportunity and ever challenge, I would say look at something like Tulsa Remote. So Tulsa is a small to mid-sized town in the United States. It was not a mecca of any one particular industry, especially in knowledge. It was mostly around agriculture. They did something brilliant, which is they started revitalizing their town to encourage remote workers to come live there. They actually incentivized them monetarily to move to Tulsa because, hey, if you can move anywhere in the world, That's we're true. now going to start attracting people here. So what did that change? Well, instead of lobbying for skyscrapers, they built great green spaces. They built great transportation. They built great medical centers. They started competing on how do we build the most livable city or town in the world? And then we attract people who can live anywhere that would choose us over another place. The other beautiful thing about this is it actually is a much more sustainable approach to taxation and revenue. Because even as people change careers, they aren't transient. They could change careers 20 times, but they're still going to stay in the most livable place. So every time the person changes jobs, Tulsa still benefits. Compare that to a lot of places. San Francisco is a great example. It is built on a transient workplace. The people that come there only come to do their tech journey and then they leave. Mm -hmm. They aren't invested in the community. They're not invested in the infrastructure. They're not invested in the same way as someone who comes and they want to stay there for a while. So yeah. I think we're just at the very beginning of really changing the face on how towns and cities have to compete with people. Will it be uncomfortable for a bit? Yes. 
But there have been some playbooks written on how to do this well. And I think long-term, it's a much more sustainable approach and you'll get the right people to come to those places for the right reason. So in many ways, we're going through a workplace revolution. If we think about it, we're going through a workplace revolution that's having significant issues on our our cities and how we move. I actually work in the micromobility sector, in in the transport sector. And, you know, we're seeing if, if what you're saying is, is true and we're going to get our, if your thesis comes, you know, evolves and that we get our cultural satisfaction outside of work, then that's going to be more in our homes and the, the cities and the villages and the townships that we live in. And that's where we're going to invest. And that's where the business will be generated. And our major cities that are soulless, that have had all the transient people, are going to have to significantly reinvent themselves or become or transfer transform um, the empty offices into apartments or warehouse living so that there is reinvigoration and we're still but we're still holding on. The cities are still holding on saying, get your people back, get your people back. Well, if you yeah. want to get your people yeah. back to the office, um, especially, I mean, you look at Sydney and Melbourne, First of all, the parking is outrageous. So the cost of parking is prohibitive for most people. And then they've got tolls that they have to go through the tolls, plus the cost of cars, everything. Price is a very big issue for a lot of people in a lot of positions that aren't in executive level roles where they have a car park. So, I mean, the reality is that even if you have a hybrid model, if you want people to come in the office, you you know, transportation is really important. And during the pandemic, a lot of people moved to the country areas. So now if you want to want them to come back, it's even longer for them. Plus they've got to get on freeways that are ridiculous, that are bumper to bumper that may take them two hours to get there. So, you know, I, I, I mean, just looking at this, my thing is, is that if you, if you are going to offer a hybrid, like you were saying, Darren, a hundred year lease coming anytime you want, the problem it's either got to be, it's got to be one or the other structured. And there's got to be because if if you tell people come in whenever you want, then certain people will come in the ones that live close to the city and there. And then does that give them an advantage? Because the boss is there. And the people who live in the country aren't coming in. So they're not being seen or heard as much as the people that are there. And then that gives them an advantage. So, you know, if you're going to have a hybrid, you almost need to go, okay, Mondays and Fridays, you can work from home, but we need you in the office between these hours or everybody works from home because it's almost like the even playing field is very important these days with making it fair for everyone and not disadvantaged, disadvantaging people who have different are in different situations. So I think that, but you know what, guys, we could talk about this and I cannot believe that we're coming to the end of this for hours. I think this deserves a part two. And Darren, you're going a long way with, you know, I'm thinking, okay, if I had a business now, I think I might go down that. I would have you as my head of remote. (laughs) But before we um, talk out, I just want to ask everybody one question. And if you could give us um, a one minute answer. So if you were advising a young person today entering the workforce, would you tell them to go with a company that gives you flexibility and able to work remote? Or would you tell them to go work in a large corporate where you can meet people? What would you tell them? What would be your advice to, to, to that young person on their first job? Darren, I'll start with you. I'd say if you know yourself well, then trust your instinct. Go with the one that will bring you the most fulfillment. If you don't know, I would say try both. What an amazing world we live in. Just a few years ago, if I would have said try both, you'd be like, good luck getting a remote job that you actually (laughs) want. We've come a long way. Now you actually can try both. There are organizations being built as we speak that are really investing in the remote experience and they're creating an entirely new industry and sector for people to live in, I think it's a huge blessing. There will always be co-located jobs for people who prefer that, but now we have a new sector. Uh, so try both. If you know what you really want, go there, find an organization that your values align with. That's what's really gonna make you happy. Fantastic. Christina? 
Um, I'm going to flip the question a little bit because I can. I'm more interested in the leaders actually thinking more carefully about what they want their workplace to look like and what kind of people they want to attract because I think there's some fundamental issues and we talked about culture and, Darren, you just touched on values. I think it's going to be really important for leaders to be very clear about what they value and to create the uh, ability to have the best productivity with great intentionality and actually hire a dedicated resource. So you leaders out there who are questioning what you should be doing, go out and find the best remote person, the best remote consultant that you can and put in place a project to think about this with a clean, fresh perspective and don't try and turn a pandemic square into a round hole because it's not working, folks. So um, I flipped the question, Judith, but that's no, no, that that's okay. I think I think I could take that just a little bit farther. You know, with these young people coming in to new work environments, wherever they go, whether it's remote or hybrid or full on in the office, I think the message to the leader would be: um, you need to make sure you have a good onboarding process for them, and don't just leave them have a weak little induction and then just say, "Okay, go home and log in here," and then forget about them because they need to have a little bit of handholding, a little bit of encouragement. They need role models. They need to know where they stand in the organization. And the other thing is, if you're going to put all that time in your recruiting to get that person on board, why are you going to waste it by not making sure they're happy and they're onboarded properly and they're with your organization for the long term growing with you instead of you training them and they go to someone else because Darren's going to approach them. (laughs) 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 So uh, what a a great conversation, Darren. Thank you so much for coming today. And um, we definitely want to have you back because, you know, I, I just love some of the things that you said and it made so much sense. And it just seems so simple that, you know, I guess everything with a good process can work if you do it right and you're consistent and you have it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And look, it's simple, not easy. Simple, simple, not easy. Yeah. But well worth the investment. Oh, thanks so much for coming. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. For more information about Every Step and our guests, head to everysteppodcast.com. To be notified of new podcasts, please subscribe via your favourite listening platform. And of course, follow us on social media and direct message us to share your ideas about guests or topics.